Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Kava. And I'm Josh. Today, we're going to be talking about season three of Star Trek Discovery. Hey, how's it going, Kava? Pretty good. Yeah, my computer crashed at work. Not much going on. (laughs) (laughs) other than that how about you how are things oh good we had a fun purim my uh my daughter went to school as a ice sorceress whoa which was which was fun she was very adorable with a cape and a blue magic wand sounds kind of like frozen (laughs) she she is watching a lot of frozen it's cute do you guys do anything for Purim? We dress Babka up, our dog, as a pirate. <laughs> oh, and we made hamantashen. Mostly Adam made them, let's be real. <laughs> Just a couple pieces of uh, housekeeping before we get started. Chava and I recently did a live show. It was uh, with the Jewish Museum of Maryland as part of their Jews in Space exhibit. And uh, that's on their Facebook page if you want to see that. We've talked about Nimoy and Spock and all things Jewish in Star Trek. Yeah, that was fun. I also recently went on the podcast Nerd Canon. That was a fun one. It's a show that looks at 80s and 90s pop culture and decides if it should be part of the TV canon or pop culture canon. Uh, So we had a lot of fun talking about Next Gen and uh, their Nerd Canon. They're on all the places that podcasts are or nerdcanon.com. I also wanted to give a shout out to uh, a really interesting new podcast uh, that has popped up recently. This one's called Black Alert Podcast. It's an approach that I think listeners of our show will find a little bit familiar. Eight hosts look at all things related to black experiences and Star Trek. So they look at black characters and actors portrayal and how that ties to like media legacies of racism. They talk Mm. with black cast members. They had uh, Star Trek Discovery's Wilson Creek on and David Ajala as well. So check them out. It's uh, it's some really interesting conversations there. Wow, that sounds really cool. One last piece of housekeeping is that we have a survey and the link is in the show notes, like in the episode description. Shouldn't take you more than five minutes or so just to help us like get a sense of who our listeners are and what kind of stuff you want to hear. And there's no prize. I don't believe in that stuff. <laughs> Star Trek Discovery Season 3, we waited a long time for this one. They they shot it a couple of years ago now, and then I think the pandemic broke out and they were done photography, but they hadn't finished like effects and music, and it kind of took a while to figure out a way to do all of that from like the new world, if you will. Uh, what do you think of this season? So at first, I really didn't like it. And then you were like, maybe it's because you're actually writing your PhD thesis. And I was like, <laughs> no, I hated it. It was terrible. And then I rewatched it because uh, we're talking about it today. And I was like, wow, this is a really good season. <laughs> 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 what did you think, Josh? Yeah, I was impressed. Um, Longtime listeners will know I've had like mixed feelings on Discovery, like decidedly not in the I hate everything Discovery does camp, um, but some criticisms at times. And I thought that uh, that this season was a great step forward. I think they did interesting things. I thought the show was really well served by getting out of the 23rd century, leaving the familiar behind and like really going to to chart its own path in like a place in the Star Trek multiverse that we haven't seen before, not running into an alien we know every week and, and awkwardly trying to shoehorn the canon, just being like, we're Star Trek and we're going to boldly go. Totally. And especially because it's like, it it predates the the original series, they really were stuck. Mm -hmm. And of course, like we're still going to get that, um, 
that prequel vibe with Strange New Worlds, though we don't know what's going to happen in a show that started shooting four days ago. Yeah, so we set the Hebrew School homework to be three specific episodes from this season. The first one is The Hope That Is You, part one, and that's the first episode of the season. Michael lands on a planet. She bumps into this other spaceship as she does so, and she realizes that she is alone um, in the future. She meets this person, and they become friends. This episode was so visually stunning. Like, I don't think Star Trek has done that many international location shoots i guess star trek beyond they did some of it somewhere in the in the gulf and the premiere of discovery they did like a little shoot in jordan but iceland such a beautiful place like it really looks like an alien world with the lava Mm -hmm. fields and everything yeah it really felt like they finally took advantage of the fact that it's easier to do this type of thing do you know what Mm -hmm. i mean yeah, I, th- I think there was some careful editing too. Like, I, I suspect that only a handful of cast went there. Like, I think when they had those other Iceland shoots in the following episode, it probably was like a comp, mm-hmm. but just beautiful. <laughs> there were actually like two different shots that were in places that Leah and I went on our honeymoon. Really? Yeah, like one one is like a very popular... I don't know, salt water, natural hot spring thing, and also like a very popular waterfall, but they're like stunning and they alien them up a little. But I think like way back when it aired, I I tweeted out some pictures that were like the shot from Discovery (laughs) and Leah standing behind the same waterfall, just like smiling for the camera. That's so funny. Aside from like the breathtaking scenery, I I also thought this episode was just like very masterfully directed. I loved that opening with uh, with Lieutenant Sahil, who was played by by Adil Hussain. You know where he's waking up and you see his routine and he sits and waits. Yes, uh, it, it really it set a tone that that was so I don't know whimsical and curious. Yeah, and also it really was like this is true future. Like we've really jumped. I think that's where we get our first taste of the programmable matter. Yeah. It's a tricky piece to look at Star Trek and be like, what can we do that's totally different to be like, this is even better technology. So so that was really smart. Yeah. So in this episode, the Federation is maybe kind of gone. We don't quite know what's happened to it. It's certainly receded after the burn, which is kind of the big incident of the season. Uh, something that happened a century before that destroyed most dilithium and made warp travel impractical and therefore separated all these disparate worlds from each other, made the universe more lonely and isolated. Mm-hmm. And... Book sees Michael's uh, Starfleet insignia and says, like, something to the effect of, you're one of those true believers. He's referring to, like, the adherents of the old Federation. Is the Federation a religion? I think yes. And particularly because of the Prime Directive. Hmm. It's like an ethical way of looking. It's a definition of how the ethics should be in their universe. What do you think? Yeah, I think the way they portray the Federation here, it had some like Jewy vibes to it and religious in a way that like Jewish can check the box, but other religions maybe don't. So like, yeah, it had that like live by a code element, but there's also like ritual associated with it. Like when she, she hangs the flag, there's an element 
of heritage, like Sahil is a, a Starfleet believer because mm-hmm. his father and his grandfather was, and yet those lines are permeable with people able to to move in and out. There's also, and we see it more in this season, there's like a perceived homeland, even though it doesn't exist anymore, which was yeah. the state of the Jewish people for, for 2000 years. Watching, I don't know, 90s Trek, it's impossible to think of a federation that exists without Vulcan and Teller and Andoria. And and yet, here it is. Yeah. And even like uh, the Jewish people as well, because of that diaspora, they develop their own cultures. And there's true like pockets of community within the Jewish community as well. And you can really see mm-hmm. that in this episode as well. Just how like diaspora and disconnection between different groups can it allows them to evolve separately really sort of seemed evident in this in this season. In our very first episode, Rabbi Wernick told the story of Moses in the Academy of of Akiva and how he he gets transported through time from like being on Sinai to the period of the early rabbis and he doesn't understand a word of what's being said and at the end of it the lesson is explained that like yes this was passed from Moses on Sinai and Moses accepts it mm-hmm. and it's that line of continuity where like we don't know what the future will hold but the future can be authentic because it has that continuity of tradition through it, even though we accept that change will occur and that the change that will occur is valid. Yeah. By the 23rd century, Star Trek fandom had evolved from a loose association of nerds with skin problems into a full-blown religion. And Scotty beamed them to the Klingon ship where there would be no Tribble at all. All power to the engines. So we have a really incredible Reb Alert guest this week, someone I feel uh, really lucky to have interviewed. Uh, should we go to Reb Alert now? Sounds good. Let's go to Reb Alert. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs> Rabbi Dovlinzer is the president and Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah and a leading rabbinic voice in modern Orthodox Judaism. He's the host of Jewish podcasts including The Joy of Text and Igros Moshe from A to Z, or Z as Chava and I might say. <laughs> Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, Rabbi Dovlinzer. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. We're tremendously glad to have you here. Thanks so much. Great to have you. Usually what we do when we have a guest is we ask them a little bit about their Star Trek knowledge, history, history yeah, your connection <laughs> with it. Do you want to tell us sure. about it? Sure. Well, I watched Star Trek as a kid. Some of the episodes are still in my mind, like what's it called? Trouble with Trebles, Tribbles or something. That scene is totally in my mind, um, how they would always send people down to the planet and you knew you weren't going to see them the next episode. Uh, so... <laughs> But I really don't have a a sharp memory of most of the episodes, but I definitely watched it as a kid. That's great. We're looking at actually the most recent Star Trek that has just finished airing a few weeks ago, season three of Star Trek Discovery, dealing with a crew that's been transported from that time of Kirk and Spock into a far future where the institutions that they know and care about and organize their lives around have vanished. We're thinking about cataclysmic changes that have happened to the Jewish people and in, in the history huh. uh, of our civilization and how we 
made it through all of those to still exist today. And mm-hmm. I think the big one mm-hmm. that comes to mind is the destruction of the Second Temple. So, I was wondering mm-hmm. if, if, Rabbi, you could tell us a bit about the events that led up to the destruction of the Second Temple. Sure, but I first have to comment and say that, having grown up on the ones from the 60s, 70s, anything other than the original is not the real Star Trek to me. Same way, same way anything other than the first three of the Star Wars episodes is not the real Star Wars. But anyway. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think it's a good parallel because when the temple was destroyed, it really radically changed the religious life of the Jewish people. You know, some scholars wonder, like for people that lived far away, how often do they actually bring sacrifices to the temple. But even if people weren't actively doing it, it it certainly was the sort of focal point of their religion. Like if you ask, like, where is God? You know, what is the center of your religious life, whether you go there or not? It is was clearly the temple and the priests. They were the people on earth that sort of represented God and represented the tradition. When the temple was destroyed, all of that radically changed and what was left. And what replaced the temple was Torah in one word. There's a famous story that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the Jewish leader at the time, um, he saw into the future, essentially. And rather than saying, how are we going to preserve the temple? He said, what are we going to do to make sure that there's a vibrant Jewish life afterwards? And he made a, according to the Talmud, I don't know if this is historically true, but he made an agreement with the uh, Roman general to say, just allow Yavne to survive. And Yavne became the capital of Torah learning. Um, So that was really the major shift that occurred, moving from the temple as the center of Jewish life to Torah as the center of Jewish life. Our listeners kind of run the the whole gamut of Jewish experiences, just as they do Star Trek experiences. Hmm. Some might not appreciate what a a radical shift that meant to move from a temple-based religious life to religious. So, could you expand on that a bit? You know, a temple-based life was one in which, you know, when you would go to the temple, the feeling of God or God's presence would be extremely intense, but most of your life would not have a lot of uh, you know, religious feel to it because it was the temple was one place hard to get to, hard to access. You had to be, you know, ritually pure. So that was a certain type of religious life, which was really not accessible to most people. Um, and it took the form of bringing sacrifices and feeling that you were physically connecting to God through the bringing of sacrifices. The shift to a Torah center was really quite radical in that it made religious life accessible or the the center of holiness accessible to to everyone because you can learn Torah, you can study Torah anywhere, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, a priest or a non-priest, the Torah is totally accessible. So it was basically saying we no longer have a centralized locus of holiness but that actually expands the possibilities. It makes everybody accessible to this thing, which is the source of God's word, you know? And it's also a shift from a sort of, I think sacrifices turn most of us off. It's a very concrete, physical, too, too physical of a way of relating to God. And here it was spiritual and intellectual through the study of religious law. So I would say that was the major shift. If you want to talk about other aspects of Jewish life, I think it's significant that the idea of daily prayer really took form after the destruction of the temple. So now every day your worship also 
was more spiritual. It wasn't through sacrifices. It was accessible to everybody three times a day. There was also the making of blessings. You know, before you eat an apple, you bring God into the world. Blessed are you, God, who gives us the fruit of the tree. So it's bringing God into every aspect of your life rather than leaving God far away in the temple. I think a lot of traditional Jews spend Tishbav, which is the day of the destruction of the temple, mourning the loss of the temple. But, you know, I think that for a lot of people, it's actually been a tremendous positive move in the sense of how much it brings God into our daily life. Yeah, that's something I was actually going to ask you is it sounds a little bit like that transition would have happened anyway, or it should happen anyway. Mm -hmm. And we really mourn the second temple destruction, but that sounds like a positive transition. Yeah, I think that for often, even for like modern Orthodox Jews, the morning of the Second Temple is very hard to access, which is why you'll find a lot of people doing programs around the Holocaust mm-hmm. on Tisha B'Av, which is easier to access. Because A, some people feel like, yeah, what is, uh, how do I relate to sacrifices, you know, at all? Like, the sacrifices feel like it makes sense to me religiously? But also, it's like there's, yeah, there's like just tremendous flourishing, religious flourishing that occurred once we were able to sort of like switch gears. It was very controlled in the temple, controlled by the priests. You know, and you could say that the rabbis took the place of the priests and they controlled it, but they didn't. Like, as opposed to, you know, I think certain trends in Christianity, where it was very much about who has access to the holy texts, the rabbis instituted public school, essentially, and they said everybody was obligated to to learn the Torah. Every Well, practically, it wound up to be boys, let's be honest, and men, which is an issue, but at least in theory, it was accessible to everyone, and they really instituted ways in which everybody would have access. It's sort of like, what did Martin Luther say? You know, what did he say? The priesthood of the laity. So for the, you know, that everybody has a right to read the text. So the rabbis figured that out like, you know, thousands of years before. I think that it's hard for me, you know, if you ask me like, what don't we have because we don't have the temple anymore? Like what's, you know, what's sort of the felt loss? I mean, I think that you know, there's a tremendous, if everybody would do like a, the pilgrimage festival, like you see, you know, Muslims doing Hajj, right? If everybody would go up on like on, on Pesach, you know, or Sukkot, and you'd have the entire people, obviously that sense of an entire people coming to a holy place would be powerful. And I think if we're honest also, even though it's nice to talk about the non-physical of the Torah learning and of the blessings and of the prayers, uh, there's some part of us, you know, that wants physical and concrete ways of relating to God. So I'm, you know, I don't know how you feel, but while there might be an aesthetic repulsion to sacrifices, there could also be something very physically powerful, you know, in that act. Like think about the way that people, when they pray, you know, m- you know, men and women, you know, depending on which tradition you're part of, like we'll put on, you know, the talit or the tefillin and they'll, 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 they'll sway and they'll shuckle. They want to make it more physical. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. Like, you know, what is it that we miss from our religious tradition that we don't have the temple now? Yeah, I was thinking about Havdalah and how physical in the the smells and fire and uh, like it it really Mm -hmm. takes over you with the music too. That experience is a tiny fraction of what temple life perhaps could have been like. So if if Mm -hmm. we've had all these changes, then why why stay so focused in our daily prayers and recalling at the end of the Seder and like all throughout the the Jewish year and Jewish life, praying for a, for a rebuilding of the temple? 
I, I appreciate your point about Havdalah. I do think that this disembodied stuff is all nice, but Judaism started as a very embodied religion. <laughs> and there's some part that we really have to get back to that. Why is it all, you know, how about Jewish art? How about other types of things that are not just intellectual, you know, that are more physical? Um, and in terms of your question about are there ele- you know, elements that are turning us back to the temple? I think the answer, if you look closely, is yes and no. I think that there were always two strands in the rabbis, those that like disagreed with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, like Rabbi Akiva, who, you know, he was a person who, a rabbi who supported the Bar Kokhba rebellion. He wanted to see the Messiah come in his time. He was hoping for a rebuilding of the temple. So were the rabbis that were like looking back and feeling the loss of the temple and sort of want to sort of say, this is to remember the loss, this is to remember the loss. And then there were rabbis who were looking forward. So if you think in terms of the prayers, right, we're often told that the prayers correspond to the sacrifices. But if you read the standard prayer, the Amidah, You'll be shocked to find out, and this is a little exercise at home for the reader or the listener, you'll be shocked to find out that sacrifices are not mentioned once. You know, Messiah is not mentioned once. They're somewhat alluded to. The the closest it gets to the sacrifices, the blessing that's supposed to be about the sacrifices says, and the fires of Israel and their prayers you should accept with desire. The fires of Israel. It doesn't ever say the sacrifices. So it's almost like, yeah, sort of, but we really don't want to focus you on the past. We want to focus you on the present. Actually, the opening verse that a person says before they begin the Amidah, God open up my lips, where it appears in uh, Psalms, the verse right before that says, because, or at, right after that, you do not desire sacrifices. You want the prayer, you know, you want our heart. So actually, there's it's interesting subtext that's actually, you know, we're told it's about sacrifices, but that's a little, I think, a little lip service because all of the messages are about the, and the prayer and so on, are, you know, are not about that. You know, Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, again, he was the one who was looking forward and he was supposed to institute all these things to remember the temple. But I actually wrote an article that I think it's a, uh, it's, I think, I think it's like a, a little uh, bait and switch. Like he tells us he's trying to remember the temple, but it really has the opposite result. Like one example is he said, well, when there was a temple and Rosh Hashanah fell out on Shabbos, you could only blow the shofar in the temple. But now that there's not a temple, you can blow the shofar wherever there's a, a court, like a center of Torah. So it's like, and that way we remember the temple. It's like, what? How do we remember the temple? Well, if anything, what we wind up saying is, who needs the temple? We can blow without it, and we can blow in more places. Wherever there's a place of Torah, we can blow. So it's framed as to remember the temple, but it actually has the the effect of making us look, you know, in the present and forward and not behind. And that's why I think Judaism ultimately survived. It wasn't just the fact that Torah is more accessible and like making blessings and all the stuff enrich our day-to-day life. But it was because you can't survive if you're looking behind. You can only survive if you're embracing, you know, the opportunities of the present and the future. I'm curious if you think actually that most of our like very physical rituals then, like Havdalah or uh, the two holidays you mentioned, I think of it as extremely physical holidays. Like Pesach right. is just all about the physical experiencing the slavery yourself. Right. Um, and then Sukkot is is as well. Like Hoshana Rabbah to me is like the strangest. <laughs> right. Yeah. The strangest day and extremely physical that way. Do you think that those are all 
really just ways of connecting to the temple or what are your thoughts? It's funny you mentioned those two because I have thoughts about both of them. You know, Passover, the central experience of Passover, of Pesach, was the Passover sacrifice. Like that was the one holiday that was all about the sacrifice. You know, everybody came and brought it. That was clearly the center of the holiday. And what we know historically is even after the temple was destroyed, Jews kept on bringing like roasted lambs and then they, you know, and calling them Paschal, Paschal lambs, even though they weren't actual sacrifices, they so felt that that was central that they could not, you know, give it up. But what winds up happening, right, is that the rabbis, you know, wind up shifting the emphasis to the other physical aspects. So like now, matzah is the center. Mm -hmm. When there was a temple, matzah was very secondary, right? It was basically the Paschal lamb and throw in some matzah. But matzah has become the center and telling the story when there was a when there was a a, a paschal lamb the, the 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 idea was you just eat the eat the paschal sacrifice and you sing praises like a hallel but now it's replaced with telling the story which is a form of torah so what they actually have done have like shifted that focus now it is true some people might feel like oh i only wish we had a paschal lamb but i'd be hard fine <laughs> you know i think that maybe in a generation or two after the destruction of the temple yeah Nowadays, I'd like to find the person who actually says that. They, what they've successfully done is they've replaced one physical experience with another, the matzah. And the singing, you still have the singing, but they've also added like Torah as a central part. The telling of the story is exactly, and it's about reading ourselves into the story. You know, that's what's so powerful about Torah, right? It's like the idea of the oral Torah is about you're a partner in the meaning of Torah, you know, and uh, telling over the story is as you said, seeing yourself interpreting the story, not just reading verses, but being a part of exploring and asking and interpreting. So it's all very much about making us, you know, partnering with God, which does not happen in the temple context. The Hoshana Rabbah, you're right, actually. Hoshana Rabbah is only makes sense in terms of remembering the temple. You go around with these crazy branches and you walk around, you know, and like there's no, there, it's a pure day that's about remembering the temple. So I'm not going to pretend that there aren't those elements, but I think very, very dominant. If you look closely, it's about moving away from that. Yeah, and as a child, I don't remember ever thinking about the temple at Hoshana Rabbah. So, <laughs> oh, you know, what do you think about? Why are we doing this crazy thing? I don't know. I guess I think about like the harvest or fruits, something like that. <laughs> there you go. Like very, there you go. very physical things, I would say. Yeah, but the lulav is another example because you know, according to the Torah, the lulav was only taken one day. It was only taken seven days in the temple. But once there was no temple, here Rabbi Yochanan Menzaga said, oh, let's remember the temple and we'll take the rule of seven days. Now, nobody thinks about the temple when they take the rule of seven days. Again, what he did was he managed to expand, you know, the ritual opportunities after there wasn't a temple. So this episode is airing uh, the week of March, and uh, we will have been a, a full year in pandemic and everything that came Aye. with that. And in addition to the world being in upheaval, the, the Jewish world is in upheaval. And I wonder what, yeah. what we can learn from our, our ancestors about how they, how they rolled with the punches in the past. Yeah. You know, that is a, a, such a good question because 
have we experienced a type of a rupture? You know, some people might say, look, wasn't the whole issues that came up with modernity and the breaking up of Judaism into denominations, you know, wasn't that like a major, major rupture? Uh, and are there leaders that are actually thinking about how do we move from the past to the current realities, you know? So to some degree, there was some of that in the past, you know, Rav Cook with Zionism and embracing, that's like a completely new reality, right? Our center is not Eastern European Torah, our center is the land and the state of Israel. Like, think about that major shift, right? He kept all the traditions, but there was a complete shift of emphasis. Like, he even talks about the, you know, the withered Torah of the exile and the live, vibrant Torah of Israel. So there have been cases like that. I don't think that COVID is the same degree of rupture. So, but I, I do think that there are going to be changes. I think that, you know, at least I can tell you in the Orthodox community, the sense of access through Zoom and what that will do to make, you know, prayer more accessible, how we might think in other ways about, you know, if we're willing to consider being there through seeing somebody, you know, what that does in terms of thinking about people with disabilities, ways mm -hmm. in which you might not need the physical as long as you have, you know, the virtual way of communicating, right? So anyway, so I think that there will be some shifts. I don't see us heading as sort of radical a time as we did with, uh, like I said, with Rev. Cook and modernity. I think that uh, the, the answer of religious Zionism, there's something, this is probably a different episode, <laughs> but the answer of religious Zionism is much fresher and newer and more compelling than the answer of modern orthodoxy of like just intellectual engagement of Torah and modernity. But each side has its downsides as well, but that'll that's some other episode. Not this. <laughs> the disability and accommodation piece is such an interesting one. Like just how I can't imagine going back and saying, forget your Seder, you're flying to Jerusalem now, is, is the same <laughs> way how I feel about telling and so my synagogue does does uh virtual services even on Shabbat and Yom Tov. The the same way right. I feel like how can I tell someone in the hospital that they can't come to their grandson's bar mitzvah again after after right. we've let the cat out of the bag here. Totally. Totally. You know, people who have difficulty of access, you know, what about if we're willing to consider somebody there because we experience them as there, even if they're not there physically, you know, what about people that, let's say, uh, can only read through Braille? I mean, how about reading over Zoom? You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of interesting questions, right, about we're expanding what it means to to feel that you can access something at a distance and it still might count as the same as direct experience. So I think that that leads to interesting possibilities. And I hope we keep on the momentum. You know, the fear is, is that everybody is, you know, at least in the Orthodox camp is eager to go back to the way things were. But I think that there's, because people have experienced the benefit of it and don't want to lose it, it's, uh, it's going to be hard. Like, you know, to, it's not just like theoretically we did this. Now we can go back. It's like, okay, everybody else can go back. But how about all the people that can't make it to show that we're only able to because of the Zoom and, you know, and just that's still a reality even post COVID. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'll have to see how that continues to play out. Rabbi Linzer, it, it's been such a joy to have you here. Someone who's such a thought leader in the, the world of, of uh, modern. Orthodox Judaism today. Uh, we really feel privileged to have you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Thank you. So 
Our website is yctor.org, y-c-t-r-a-h.org. And, um, you know, you'll find there a link to our Torah library, all my podcasts. But what I also really want to emphasize is, you know, in addition to my Torah, I had the rabbinical school that I had, um, YC Torah, which has 145 rabbis out in the field. And they're doing tremendous work on Hillel in synagogues and chaplaincy in the day schools, community schools. And I hope that you have one of our rabbis who connects with you or your kids, because if so, you are very lucky. They are amazing amazing, engaging, inspiring rabbis who know how to uh, relate to the issues of today, do the type of translation we were talking about. So uh, please check out our website. And uh, if any of this is of interest to you as a student or potential uh, person who wants one of our rabbis, let me know. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. It's really been wonderful to be here. Welcome back after our really interesting interview with Rabbi Dove Linzer. I've been thinking about how, do you think this could have been the most Jewish season of Star Trek ever? Ever? Like, of all time? Of all time. Did we say that about Picard also? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe at the end there with that golem, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But it's really true. This this, This really does give a very, a very Jewish vibe. I feel like the whole theme of the season was like diaspora and finding your homeland and like what that whole thing means. Some little things that I liked too. Uh, we had some great Jewish guest stars this season that were really fun. Admiral Touch of Grey, <laughs> Admiral Vance, oh, is yeah. Israeli actor Oded Fair. Mm-hmm. And also, Oh, such a cool character. Toronto's own David Cronenberg was Kovich. He's like the mysterious Federation guy. Oh, him. Yeah. I remember being like, Adam, are we supposed to know who that is? He knows who everyone is. Like, he knows about the Mirror Universe. He knows yeah. about the J.J. Abrams films. <laughs> he knows about the weird early TNG uniforms that only zip up in the front <laughs> and caused back problems. It's the glasses, obviously. <laughs> right. This was the guy on the show who had like read Memory Alpha, and I don't mean the actor, I mean the character. <laughs> yeah, this was like the diehard Star Trek know-it-all. <laughs> I mean, also like, how did David Cronenberg end up in Star Trek? <laughs> Especially since there are so many episodes of earlier Trek that are like very clear homages to David Cronenberg. Like, uh... The episode of Next Gen Genesis, the one where they're like devolving and and Worf eats a bunch of people and uh, Barkley turns into a spider. Oh, yeah. I, that, that one, I, I think, is like very Cronenberg-y. Also, uh, Voyager Macrocosm, which which has a little bit of Die Hard in it too. But you know where Janeway has to like chase those giant viruses. Oh yes. Even in it's such a horrifically bad episode, like famously bad, but threshold the one where they cross warp 10 and then uh paris and janeway turn into lizards and mate that's really funny (laughs) that that one is so (laughs) cronenbergy i think for me the episode that felt the most jewish was forget me not the one where they went to trill oh yeah definitely that one was really good i really liked that episode the the episode after we're introduced to adira and we discover that they have a symbiont in them that they don't even know really how they obtain the symbiont. So it's kind of like a coming of age 
um, episode a little bit. What did you think of the episode? This was one of my highlights of the season. This episode feels like a homecoming because we're going to a place finally that that feels very familiar. They they recreated the caves of Makala very similar to how they appeared on Deep Space Nine. The problem that the Trill are facing felt very Jewish also of like, they feel under great threat because of the risk of losing their oral tradition, which for them is passed through the memory of the symbiotes. Mm -hmm. All throughout, I kept thinking of our conversation with Rabbi Andrea Myers. That's in our episode from a few months ago, 70 Facets. You know, they talked about how the, the trill had resonated with them. And we talked about the episode where Jadzia goes into those same caves and, you know, the idea of being able to to commune with your ancestors and take on these different identities. I don't want to speak for Rabbi Andrea Myers, but that was a great conversation we had. And, and I was thinking about it a lot in this episode. Yeah, definitely. And also like the need to adapt uh, your way of life to like so many of the, the trill leaders that uh, when Adira and Michael got to the planet, they were very mm-hmm. against allowing Adira into the caves at all. I don't remember the name of the one that did. Guardian Z. Guardian Z. He was just sort of like, this is this is how our religion is going to move forward and how like we can keep our culture going. And I think that Judaism is facing a very similar problem, just like having to adapt to the modern world. I don't know if that's... It's not quite the same because this is a bit more like exclusionary, but in general, yeah, I, I see that as very similar. I think it's so relevant. The idea that to be a trill is more than to be a member of the trill species. Senatel says to Adira, a, a human host is unusual, but Tal accepts you too. Mm-hmm. And then for Adira Tal, who's like, the name Adira Tal sounds like it's someone I could have gone to Hebrew school or summer camp with. <laughs> for for Adira Tal to like then emerge from the mikvah, put on a talus <laughs> and, and recite their new name <laughs> felt very on the nose. Yeah, definitely. And this was a big episode in terms of um, trans representation for Star Trek II. I know we had bubble cases and everyone says, well, maybe Dax and what about that whole planet in that bad next gen episode? And what about Odo? And what about what this, this was characters who were meant to be trans and non-binary played by actors who are trans and non-binary. And that representation was overdue and also like like really really well done yeah. blue del barrio and and ian alexander just like like hit it out of the park with like so much pathos and like really terrific performances e- even though they kind of do that barrier gaze trope because gray is dead as soon as we as soon as we meet him mm-hmm. but i think still on the whole it, it was it was quite a step forward yeah and also the visuals in this in this episode like when adira is in the pool all of the like ropes and things that are like climbing up onto them. Mm-hmm. There's sort of like a, a plant climbing onto them. The visuals for that were just amazing. I yeah, that scene gave me goosebumps as as they appear and you see like generations of Tal and mm-hmm. retro Starfleet uniforms and um, it's like, yeah, the, the Trill, just like they say in that episode, they, they represent this like legacy of memory. And I think it's really interesting to have that character be a part of the series, especially when you have this big time gap where like we don't know what's happened between the season finale of Picard season one and this, which is like 700 and something years. Mm-hmm. 
So speaking of characters that have names that uh, could have been someone I went to Hebrew school with, we met Shira the Romulo Vulcan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did you like Unification 3? Um, I did, yeah. I was a little bit put off by Michael's mom. Do you want to summarize it? Discovery is trying to investigate the cause of the burn. They want to reach out to the Vulcans to get some important data. But Admiral Sultan Pepper tells them that Vulcan isn't called Vulcan anymore. It's now Nivar. And the Vulcans and Romulans live together there and that they left the Federation. But that with Michael Burnham, the sister of Spock, they just <laughs> might have a chance of reaching them. Nivar doesn't want to hand over the data, but Michael invokes Takal and Ket, a Talmudic ritual whereby whoever knows the most Torah automatically uh, wins on behalf of their academy. <laughs> yeah, it also was very reminiscent of like a, a, a Sanhedrin or something like that, where everybody's arguing about the law and trying to logic their way through um and what's the right thing to do it's like hillel and shammai and it's mm -hmm. a, it's an argument for the sake of heaven but like anything's game because everything's torah and you're just gonna have this like epic rap battle yeah and it's also it was like so emotionally charged too which was kind of strange this episode ties a bow nicely on like the world building that i think star trek has has really been trying to pursue i mean it's a sequel to a next gen episode that brought back an original series character that uses a plot point introduced in picard so they're all over the place <laughs> wonderful to see leonard nimoy again uh using that uh that clip from unification too yeah you you weren't such a fan of the mother eh i just thought that it was like not realistic for the mother to just rat her out like that in front of everybody and kind of throw her under the bus it, it kind of made sense in the end and she was like well my like you know my loyalty is to the logic and the truth of this thing and it's like okay yeah but like why didn't you just tell her you know like you could have just said like i need you to be honest <laughs> I also thought it strained credulity that her mother is like lost in space and time and they just kind of run into her. Yeah. <laughs> that too. It's like she just happens to be there. It was a good bow on it and it would have been like an annoying mystery box, a necessary mystery to have if you were like, where's Michael's mother? Yeah. Especially since Michael has like 15 mothers. Yeah. <laughs> It's true. I kind of did like how they uh, how they tied that up. There was also a nice little nod to uh, to Anton Yelchin in this one. I, it's a blink and you miss it, but there's a USS Yelchin that they pass by as they're leaving Federation headquarters. Huh, cute. There's a line from the Takalan Ket. Uh, Michael says Spock would have found it illogical to sacrifice knowledge to avoid risk. What do you think of that, Josh? I like that line a lot. It felt very authentic to Spock. That's what he's all about, right? Is like, he stands for something. And the thing he stands for, like, beyond anything else is like, morality and the quest for truth and beauty. And he's willing to put it all on the line to like, sacrifice his reputation to bring his peoples together or put his hands into the glow to save the Enterprise. I appreciate the moral clarity of Spock's pursuit for truth. And I like that it was reflected here. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that just from you saying that, it kind of reminds me that it sort of seems like actually the religion of the Federation does really come from that. Um, and is like hmm. set out by Spock. Like he is the definer of like what is important to the Federation. They're not just there to be like a super UN of planets. Yeah. They want to they wanna boldly go. Yeah, they're, they're boldly going. They're finding the truth. They're being moral. 
all that. It's like really, it's Spock's way of life. Yeah. Kirk's too. Risk is our business. Yeah. Yep. Yep. One thing I did like with the mother is that, that like Adira, this is another incident of to be a member of the people goes beyond being that species. Like she is a Romulan. She's a co-op Malat, even though she's a human being. I did really like that too. And also is kind of like, ooh, and it's Michael's mom. How cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she's got a Vulcan dad and a Romulan mom. And she is the the Romulo Vulcan. Yeah, except actually human. And her emotions (laughs) save the day every time. I thought they did a lot better job of her emotions this time around. You know, she gets that like, that poof in the face when they drug her in the first episode, which really made me think of um, of like Spock getting the the spores in his face. Yeah, she never really gets her inhibitions back after that happens. Like she maybe some of it is the jump ahead of like the year with book, but she seems more emotionally mature, more in touch with her feelings, more willing to take risks. Everything's not so like extreme and dire as it was before. Sonequa Martin-Green did a really good job of of showing like the growth of that character, which we needed because because of course the season was going to end with her in the big chair. Yeah, that like year of growth was really evident. Like she really did mm-hmm. change the character after after that. I agree with you. She had a good season. I thought Tilly had a really good season. Oh yeah. Mary Wiseman did a great job. I liked the chances that Tilly was able to make, but I also like that she didn't get to win all the time. Like she really is still inexperienced and it, it was a mistake for Saru to make her first officer. And like, that's not a mistake on the part of the show. I think that's, that's interesting storytelling to like show the, the flaws that some mm-hmm. of them made. You know, that next gen where like Deanna is taking the commander's test and she's got to send Jordy to his death. That's <laughs> yeah. the moral is like you have to let you have to kill Jordy if you want to get promoted. It's a holographic Jordy. <laughs> Tilly could not do that. And no. I don't know if Saru could do it either, but like like Michael sh- she Michael stands up when Damitz is making a very honest plea, like painfully, my whole life is in that nebula. She does what she has yeah, to do and yeah. it and it hurts, but like she can sit in the big chair, she's ready for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Stamets didn't get a whole lot to do this season, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really. Like there was mm-hmm. the the like thing where he saved the ship when it's being crushed by the ice and stuff, but other than that, it wasn't super Stamitsy. Although they did do yeah. a lot with him and Adira, and I thought that that was really nice. Yeah, I like the the little family that Stamets, Culber, and Adira make up, even if Stamets sort of like forcibly adopted Adira. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I thought it was cute. <laughs> and I, I liked the bumping up of the secondary characters. The PTSD arc with Detmer I thought was interesting. Awosakone, yes. like we got a little bit more. She's still not really fully fleshed out but she's interesting i I liked that she got to be the the hero in the finale Mm -hmm. um i wasn't expecting that and i i definitely wasn't expecting her to live through it because this show is is pretty willing to drop one of its characters yeah at the end it was a little bit shocking i was like are they really gonna kill people like what is (laughs) happening is this even star trek (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, it's true. They did a lot with the characters this season. I really liked Kayla. Yeah. I thought that that was really well done. It addresses a problem that Star Trek has always had of like, why are you laughing and smiling for the camera in the closing scene when there are like bodies on the bridge? <laughs> and she's, uh, she's, she's walking wounded. Yeah. One person who did not survive the season is actually my Afi Komen. Mine too. What a coincidence. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Do we have a double reb alert for our Afi Komen? <laughs> I think we do. Besides, I have an idea that may prove... Shh. Listen, do you hear it? Evacuate all personnel in this water. Double red alert. He's the man in blue, Star Trek Discovery Season 3's Rin. Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, Noah Averback Katz. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome. Yes. I finally have fulfilled the dreams of my people <laughs> and my parents. You know, I think they're finally <laughs> proud of me. I have this sort of running joke with my manager, Troy. Uh, who's also, you know, a part of the tribe. We like to say that every one of the characters I play is Jewish. Uh, you know, and I've played I've played Jews, you know, I've done My Name is Asher Lev, I've done Bad Jews, I've auditioned for many Jews, but I think it's very fun when I get to play an alien, a, a different species, you know, from another planet, and yet somehow they're still Jewish. <laughs> That's canon. Rin is Jewish. That's canon. You heard it here first. Whoa. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Taking that with us into the episode. <laughs> so we always uh, start by asking our guests kind of their Star Trek history. And we have people run the the whole gamut from from one guy who thought he was on a Star Wars podcast to uh, <laughs> to the hardcore fans. So uh, what, what's your history there? <laughs> Well, you know, I sort of was thrust into the world uh, without much of a choice of whether or not I was going to be a Star Trek fan. My mother was a big sort of fan of utopia in general, you know, flawed utopia. That was sort of her thing. My parents are sort of the second wave of East Coast intelligentsia moving out to <laughs> California looking, for, uh, you know, whatever it is they were looking for at the time. They definitely didn't find it, but they found it in Star Trek instead. I grew up with the reruns of Next Gen, with the final episodes of Voyager, and then really watched week to week for the first time from beginning to end with Enterprise. Hmm. Uh, and then, you know, was going to conventions. My mom recently uh, corrected something I said on a different podcast um, in a very sternly worded text message saying that my first... Uh, my first convention was not at uh, 12 or 13. It was, in fact, when I was eight years old. So I, I make sure to get that correct now. And then, uh, yeah, then then the rest is sort of history after that. Chava and I also come from that uh, passed down from our parents kind of trek entry. Now, was it passed down from mom or dad for you guys? Mom. Yes, and exactly. Both, but like more dad. Dad had the uniform. Yeah. Okay. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That's awesome. I find most it's mom passing down, but occasionally we'll, you know, we'll get a dad in there who's like really into the kind of, you know, the ships and the uniforms and the tech. And he's like, we got to get this, we got to get this to our son so he can really <laughs> let us down, you know? And luckily it didn't stick for either of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So can you tell us about your experience playing Rin? It was amazing. It was a total dream come true. You know, obviously I'm married to the amazing Mary Wiseman who plays Sylvia Tilly. So I sort of took every opportunity to get on set, of course, pre-COVID, of course, to get on set and to walk around and get to know everybody and hang out. And so I really kind of had this sort of first off, like the fan experience of you know, just getting to like sit in the chair and, and do all that stuff that you kind of imagine doing. And, and it was amazing. And then to get to kind of move to the other side of the camera was just fantastic because it really did feel like it lived up to all my expectations, you know, because it would have really sucked if it was like, here's this thing that I love. And that's a huge part of my life. And I finally get to do it and it totally blows and I want to quit, you know, that would have been a real bummer, but it was so much fun. And, you know, I was so lucky with how much I got to do, you know, not just having one, two, but getting to do three episodes in a 13 episode season is a ton. I got to work with Jonathan Frakes twice, which was incredible. I got to work with so many different cast members too. You know, I feel like a lot of time, guest stars on Star Trek maybe have like one person who they're really doing everything mm-hmm. with, you know, maybe one or two, but I got to work with, you know, I was, I was super early on with David and it was so much fun getting to work with David and, and he was sort of like just finding his footing there. And it was so much fun to get to work with him as he was sort of in this new space, just like me. So that was a great starting point. I got to work with Michelle and Sonequa and then, you know, Doug Emily, Mary, of course, I got to be on the bridge and, you know, I just got to do so much different stuff. And then, of course, to get to finish up with Ken Mitchell just really made it feel like I got to do I just got to do so much in such a short amount of time that it was really just a fantastic experience. Yeah, it sounds like a dream. <laughs> exactly. It really was. It really was. It's not a huge part, but it has so much heart to it and an arc. And, you know, you really you really get to know him and feel for him in, in that short time. And important to the season in general. Yeah, you know, it was great to, to feel like I did. I did, you know, have more of a purpose in terms of sort of the, the heart of the show. And, and I really liked, you know, how much we did get to learn about him and watch his journey. But I also mm-hmm. like, you know, there's a bit of mystery there. You know, what is this guy's deal? Where did he come from? What's his relationship to all these people? And right as we think we're going to find out, he gets fried and you're just left wanting a little bit more, which I think it's better to be left wanting more than than too much. And uh, fingers crossed, of course, but Star Trek does have a great legacy of bringing back those <laughs> guest stars, especially when the prosthetic already fits their head. Exactly. Anything <laughs> is possible. Anything is possible. On our show, we like to uh, use Star Trek as a lens to uh, to boldly explore worlds of Jews and Judaism. <laughs> so this episode, we're thinking about season three of Discovery and how it you know might relate to Jewish ideas around like diaspora and recovering after a disaster. Uh, you mentioned that uh, that in your head canon Rin might be Jewish. So t- <laughs> tell us what you think about all that. <laughs> That's an interesting comparison. You know, I do think that it's sort of like a, a, a Passover story, but if the Egyptians won, uh, you know, like if, 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 if Rin is this sort of like, you know, he's like, in the emerald chain and he's like way high up there and he's like you know what actually you know i was born into this thing and actually you know this sucks and i hate this and i'm looking around and you know we're t- we're the bad guys you know all of a sudden and he gets out and then he's sort of you know exiled to this you know deep planet and then kind of bring finds this community and brings it back but unfortunately you know he gets his 
he gets blown up, but you know, everybody else sort of continues on the torch. So I think there is that kind of thing of like being sort of scattered, you know, and then refinding a community, especially a community that you're maybe a little bit skeptical of at first that you sort of maybe have heard, you know, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to fit in here. I don't know if you guys are, we're really on the same page. You know, it, there is that sort of moment of like really kinding his footing in this new area, which I feel like is, is somehow relevant in there too. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, you know, it, it is that sort of feeling of being scattered and kind of having to find a new home and, and finding a way to fit in without sort of sacrificing your identity. That's really interesting. Can you tell us about Bad Jews? Yeah, it's a super popular play by this playwright named Josh Harmon. Premiered in New York, then sort of was this hugely popular regional play it's a lot to explain, and I don't really remember it anymore because I did it back in 2015, 16 in, in, in D.C. at the Studio Theater with my dear friends, Laura and Rowan and Maggie. It's a play about the sort of the, the tension of modern Judaism, which is like on one side, you know, it's like sort of wanting to keep the old ideas and traditions and identity alive, even if it's becoming less, more and more unmoored from the sort of like modern world or from like what it means to be Jewish in the modern world. And, mm -hmm. and you sort of look for these ties, which is in the play, like the grandpa is a Holocaust survivor who has passed on. So like th that's that big tie. But then you also have sort of the tie to Israel, which of course is, has its own like huge conflict, especially for like a Jew in the United States. And you have this, this female character sort of representing that world. And then on the other side, you have this, you know, upper middle, up, upper class Jewish guy and their cousins, upper class Jewish guy who is sort of completely rejecting it and is studying Japanese and has a chicks a girlfriend has sort of benefited from all of the positive aspects of the culture and the identity and the intellectualism and all those things that come visit, but is sort of completely rejecting everything else that might be a little bit more messy or a little bit more spiritual or confusing. And it's sort of like their tension. It's very funny and dark and sort of ends with this other, the, uh, the, the final sort of character who's just sort of caught between and is like, I don't really know what the hell to do or where this works or how to fit into all this. And you're just like, yeah, totally. That makes sense. <laughs> I think it's, it's worth a read for sure. It's, it's a really interesting play and it's, uh, it's funny and it's, it's fun. It sounds really interesting. Uh, I got to ask because we're locals, your experience in Toronto and uh, what, what you think oh. of our, our, my hometown and Chava's transplanted town. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. You, well, all right. So here's the one thing is like, I know there's a Hasidic community here, but the only time I've ever seen them is at the airport. I never have seen the, like, you know, in, in New York, you know, it's like, I'll drive, I used to live in, in, in Crown Heights. And so I would like see, mm. you know, that whole community over there. Or like when you go through Williamsburg, you sort of would drive through the Hasidic community, but here, maybe it's, I haven't just done enough exploring. Yeah. They're not in the city anymore. They used to be in Kensington. Interesting. Uh, but now but, they've moved to Bathurst, Lawrence area. The Toronto Jewish community, it's funny, they started downtown and the whole community lives on one north-south street, but like 
from downtown all the way to way up in the burbs. And uh-huh. as you kind of go through, you layer into different generations and religious communities and it doesn't <laughs> yeah. like fit exactly perfectly but but yeah drive up and down bathurst street you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of black hats okay well now that i know where to look i can say yeah there they are there they are which of course you know only i'm allowed to do nobody else can do that <laughs> or you guys can do it too but uh, i love toronto it's been great of course this year is not like every yeah. other year but but we've in, we've enjoyed it enjoyed it quite a bit up here Chava, should we give a, a jewish toronto restaurant recommendation i gotta put it on as long as it's on uber eats we'll be good to go do you have a good one or are you talking about <laughs> that was very talking? critical of of toronto bagels in particular or oh what, yeah what do you montrealers call them abomination rolls <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's i i man yeah there's some toronto stuff where i'm like yeah this isn't it this is not the food you know especially <laughs> when you're in new york and you go to the bagel place and it's like, this is, this is it. This is where you're going. Uh, you, then you get something and it's like, this is a Sara Lee bread roll. I'm sorry. This is not a freaking bagel. I'm well, not I this. mean, the Montreal style ones though are very different from the New York ones. We haven't been up to Montreal yet, so I, oh, I can't comment. Yeah. You know, we, the problem is, is that every time we've been here and we finished shooting it's been like freezing and we're like i'm not doing that no it's even worse here yeah yeah i'm not uh, going it's, there it's worse in montreal and well if you want a toronto jewish restaurant if you want a place that's like where your bubby would go get a split pea soup and an egg salad sandwich mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's united baker's dairy restaurant okay and if you yeah. want like right. the the modern hipper Jewish food. There's uh, Fat Pashas is really good. That's sort of like that, that, yeah. see, as, as long as there's a name, I feel like if there's a name in the title, you're going to be good to go. Like, <laughs> I feel like in California, the one place we always it was just called Max's. And it's like, I just know that's going to work. You know what I mean? I know there's going to be a pickle. It's going to be good. We're good to go if there's some sort of name in the title. So, all right, we'll check those out. <laughs> Noah, thank you so much for joining us and thanks for your time. I hope you'll give uh, our very best uh, to Mary. Uh, she's absolutely wonderful on Discovery and it was great to have you on the show this year too. And uh, thank you so much. I definitely will. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good one, guys. That's all for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. Your Hebrew School homework for next month is the Enterprise episode, Awakening, and the Discovery episode, New Eden. Our opening fanfare is by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Thank you so much to our guests, Rabbi Dove Linzer and Noah Averbach-Katz. Don't forget we've got a listener survey in the episode description below. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening.